We're continuing in our series today in Luke's Gospel. We're calling it Certain Truth. And uh, we're going to jump right into the scripture passage today. So I'd like for you to find Luke chapter 15. We've, uh, we've jumped ahead several chapters. We'll return later to a few of the, the places that we missed. But we jumped ahead to Luke chapter 15. This is the story of lost and found. The whole chapter is the story of, of lost and found things. A, a shepherd who loses a sheep, one out of a hundred, and he finds it. And a, a woman who loses one of her ten um, um, wedding coins and finds them. And then a father who loses a son and finds him come back. Let's stand together for Luke 15, 11 to 32. If you're in the Red Bible, it's page 651. Page 651 in the Red Church Bible. It starts like this. Jesus is speaking and he says, um, a man had two sons. The older son, the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. It's in verse 12. Literally that the word that that comes from is bion or what we get bios. Bios is in biology. It's to divide his life, his livelihood. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his um, belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Not an appropriate activity for a good Jewish boy. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but he has now returned to life. He was lost, but he has been found. So the party began. Verse 25 says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Oh, your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of a safe return. Well, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. And his father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing a fattened calf. Verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed with me. And everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but he is found. Praise God for his word. Let's take a seat together. 
Jesus was, um, you know, a marvelous storyteller. He crafted his his parables, what we call his, his stories that have, that teach uh, a lesson that's called a parable. He, t- he crafted these with surprise and humor and shock and awe. You know, for his audience, hearing this parable for the first time or maybe for the tenth time, there's no reason to believe that a, that a good traveling teacher like Jesus wouldn't have t- used the same stories in, in multiple places, right? It, it, it had several cultural problems, as you may well be aware. This, this younger son demanding his inheritance from his father? That's, that's unacceptable. And then he runs away, he embarrasses the family name. And the older son does not intervene, does not mediate between the father and, and, and his brother and the rest of the family. So he's really not doing his job. And then he, this older son that refuses the father's invitation to come to the banquet and he displays anger instead, highly unacceptable in that culture. And, and then the father just honestly embarrassing himself by full on running to his son. It's very undignified for a, for a gentleman of means. And, uh, and then welcomes the son home when in fact the village would have known that the son's return meant an opportunity to fully publicly reject the boy for his bad behavior. So these would have been outrageous details for Jesus' audience. Now we usually focus on the younger son for the way that you know he rejected his family, went off to live wildly, and, and, and we look at sort of the way the father welcomed him back in the family. And Jesus uses several symbols to emphasize how complete and full the welcome home is. He talks about, you know, it's just bring a, bring a robe, a fine robe. The, the, the robe is a symbol of the father's honor and the, the father's, you know, pleasure. You think of, maybe you think about Joseph way back a couple thousand years prior to this. You have, you have Joseph, son of, of Israel, son of Jacob, who, who was the favorite son and was given the amazing Technicolor dream coat, right? And, um, and you think of that kind of favor. That's what's happening here and. Just as, you know, we're dressed, you and I are dressed in the clothing of Jesus' righteousness when we trust in Him. Isaiah 61 says we, we've been robed in righteousness. You have a new identity. It harkens back to the, to the early priests when Moses was first given the law of God and he was given instructions about the tabernacle and the, and the priests, the robes that the priests wore were highly ornate, highly decorated, highly beautiful extremely costly. That's the sort of picture of how the Lord wants to dress you in His righteousness. And that's what's the picture here. Sandals, shoes that that He's he's given for His feet, they represent prestige, right? Only in that time, only slaves would have been barefoot. But to have shoes means you've been elevated. Around the world, shoes always means a step up out of poverty. Doesn't it? Some of you wear Tom's shoes. I don't know how many of you wear Tom's, but you like buying Tom's shoes because when you buy a pair of Tom's, someone in another country gets a free pair of shoes. It begins to lift them out of, out of poverty. Some of you old enough to remember Imelda Marcos with her thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes there in the Philippines as a status symbol. Right? The ring is the symbol of inheritance and the symbol of authority of the family. He's given the rights of sonship that's given back to him. He's, he's got an identity with the family and unlikely entitled to an inheritance once again. And the fatted calf is a symbol of God's abundant provision. 
of, of generosity that the Father gives the best to His returning children. Jesus put it this way. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life in abundance, a fullness to that. So somewhere in history, we took to calling this parable the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. But prodigal is not in the Bible. That word's not in there. Um, prodigal is not a word we really use in everyday language, I don't think. It, it can mean wasteful or extravagant or, or to spend lavishly, right? But it's not a word from the Bible. Um, and the story's not exclusively about the younger brother. It's a story about a father and his sons and the nature of salvation. Isn't that a cute calf? Some of you are getting hungry right now. We'll just leave that up there until we get to the next point, because it's very idyllic, pastoral kind of look. Now, both the younger son and the older son had rejected the, the salvation and the safety of the father's house. Right. The younger son chose a life of what we call license. I can do what I want. Right. Living for himself, making his own way, living for pleasure. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'll do it my way. Thank you very much, Frank Sinatra. Right. That was going to be his salvation. He was going to figure it out. I don't need my dumb old parents telling me what to do. Right, guys. Right. You know better. At 18, you actually know everything and then you unlearn it later. And you have to learn it back. Some of us have have done that, that I'm here for a good time, not a long time philosophy. And then you've got the older son. He actually rejected God. He rejected the grace of the father by working hard. So instead of license, he chose a life of law, of legalism, right? The good, the morally acceptable son seeking to earn his father's acceptance, forgetting this. An inheritance is not earned. It's given. You don't earn an inheritance. It's given to the family, to the, to the child of the family. And some of us are an older brother, honestly, and religious people are in just as much danger of missing salvation as reckless sinners. Let me say that again. Religious people are in just as much danger of missing salvation as reckless sinners because we think that our good behavior somehow gets us in good with God. Yeah, maybe not all the way in good with God, but pretty close. And then Jesus just finishes up that last teeny little bit. No, our righteousness is filthy. Self-righteousness compared to God's amazing grace. So religious duty does nothing but produce religious duds. So it's actually a parable not only about the younger son and not only about the father or the older brother. It's a parable about us. And about God, our Father, who invites us to a restored relationship with Him as demonstrated in the banquet. You really see it there in those kind of the whole last portion of it. Verse 22 says, His Father says, Bring the finest robe, quick, put it on Him, get a ring, get sandals, kill the calf. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and he's been found. We have to celebrate this. And the older son Here's the music and the dancing when he comes home. Can't believe what's going on. Verse 28, he was angry and wouldn't go in. Here's some, here's some good news for you today. No matter who you are, 
no matter what you've done or what you haven't yet done, whether you've read the Bible through every year for the last 50 years or you've never cracked a page, whether you think you know all the answers in Sunday school or you're scared to speak up, no matter who you are, the Father invites you to the Feast of Salvation. The Father invites you to the Feast of Salvation. That's the, if you're using the outline today, that's your first point there. The Father invites you to the Covenant Feast of Salvation. Covenant is an agreement, right? It's a, it's a lasting, permanent arrangement. So the banquet then is a picture of salvation and fellowship with God. Salvation is God's idea. Salvation is God's idea. Right? He first created all things with a word. He said, let it be. Friends, whatever you're hearing and thinking and, and grasping with these days, God is still the creator and he created all things. Heard something really cool in the news this week that they found a black hole in space that's something like 12 million times the size of the sun. And now they're trying to figure out how it got there because it's inexplainable. So now we have to come up with new theories about timelines and big bangs and all that stuff. Well, God is so good about like hiding little things in space because to him, a black hole that's 20 million times the size of the sun is pretty small. He's the creator of all things. And he created the whole human family, including you. And, and we're all separated from God by sin, right? And so some choose a life of license saying, well, I, I'm just going to do what I want anyway. And some choose a life of law. I'm just going to work really hard at this and, and be a good person. And we learn that both sin and religious self-righteousness keep us separated from God. And only God's grace and only our faith in Christ can save us. It's what we would call the way of liberty. Neither license nor law, but liberty. And at the time of Christ, meals were used often to seal a covenant agreement, a deal, a bargain that was made. It was sometimes called a salt covenant. So the salt covenant was, was an indication that says, we've, we've agreed and this is a lasting arrangement. So much so that we're going to eat together over this. So that's a, a salt covenant. That's why the symbolic meal of communion that we're going to have today, a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, it's a symbolic meal is so important. It's a salt covenant. It's an arrangement between God and people. That it's Jesus' blood, no longer the law, that atones for our sin. It's God's way of saying, you can count on me. The meal guarantees it. And communion is a reminder of a great feast to come, what Revelation 19 calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, a great big final party when we are united with Christ. Did you know, for example, that weddings usually include a, a, a meal right at the reception? It might be a little stand-up deal or it might be a full-on banquet. Do you, do you know why we have a meal at weddings? It's not to pay back for the gift that you brought. Right? The, the wedding meal is the final step of the covenant that the couple are making. The couple have promised to one another. They've promised to God. And they've promised to the community, we will keep these vows. And to, to affirm that, we're going we're gonna to hold a salt covenant. We're going to prepare a feast. We're going to prepare a meal as our act, our way of saying, we are committing to this deal, this bargain. Now, God's 
God is so gracious, right? I understand in, in, in any room like this, lots of us have, have been through the heartache of a marriage that uh, broke apart or lost in some other way. I, I understand that God is gracious, but I want you to understand that intent of that covenant meal that says we're making a, we're making a, a promise here. And that's what Jesus does. And the feast that Jesus financed with his blood, right? It's not one you can pay for. Think about this. That feast is paid for. It's been financed. Going up for dinner is expensive, right? I mean, man, you can barely go to In-N-Out for less than 10 bucks a person. I mean, it's just costly. But the feast has been financed by Jesus' blood. It's received by faith. It's an invitation. It's not a ticket to be purchased. And the father wanted both his sons at the table in the same way he wants you at the covenant feast of salvation, both now and in eternity. As a fully inherited member of the family. And there are many people who do seek salvation. It's God's idea, but people seek it out. There's a craving for it, right? Trying harder is the most common way. And whether you're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Sikh or an environmentalist or a philanthropist or an atheist, there's a desire to be saved. But in those, that way, it's all by self-effort. And in this parable, both boys were lost, the sinner and the saint, because of a lack of relationship with the dad. And that's the next point in your outline, that a relationship with the father is the only way to salvation. A relationship with God is the only way to salvation. And I know I'm probably preaching to the choir today, um, literally, actually, as well as figuratively speaking. But we're all prone to a work harder religion instead of faith. You know why? Because it's something we can control. It's something we we can manage and and do ourselves. And, And some of us even use our hard work and our good behavior and, and our religious activity to hide the fact, like the older brother did, to hide the fact that we actually don't have any real relationship with God the Father. That we haven't actually fully given our heart to Christ Jesus as Lord, but that's the only way to know the Father. To fully put your faith, your weight, in Christ. Think about it this way. Um, as an illustration, have you ever laid down on a hammock? Hammock. I never, can never know how to say hammock. You know, hammock. Say it for me. Hammock. Why can't I say that word? You know, who, who has ever fallen out of a hammock trying to get in a hammock? Yeah. It's really embarrassing, right? And, and forget about trying to get into a hammock with another person. As Jim Gaffigan says, you better be married. Because it's awkward, Right? The only way to really get into a hammock is just to let yourself go. Don't fight it. Just fall in. And you know what's great about a hammock? Once you're in, you're not getting out. <laughs> it's a perfect picture of salvation. And that, that's what Jesus, that's faith. That's what Jesus does for you. And my question is, regardless of your time in church, right? Do you know God the Father? I mean, do you have a relationship for example, if you were to imagine having dinner with God, if he called you up and said, hey, I'd like to go for coffee, I want to meet you at Starbucks, would, you, would that be exciting to you? Or would you be like, oh no, we've got nothing to talk about? Or would you be like, wow, oh, this is cool. That's a good test. Have you have a relationship with the Father or not? 
Let's step back away from the story for a moment or out of the story and just become spectators again. Because it's, it's not hard for us, many of us at least, and I include myself in this, to admit that we more easily identify with the older brother than the younger brother. It's sadly the older brother, like I've said, in spite of his you know, faithfulness, just had no love for his dad and no love for his brother. You know, he says to his dad, that son of yours, you're talking about your brother, right? He had no love there. And so the homecoming party was actually offensive to him. It was, it was an offense to him. It turned him off. And here's my honest question. This is a third line in your outline if you're following along. Are we a church that welcomes the younger brother? Are we a church that can welcome the younger brother? I, I love verse 25. I just, I just love it. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. I, I love it not because it's good, because it's so heartbreaking. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Guy's clueless. He heard, what I like about it, is he heard music and dancing. That means what? The volume was turned up. The volume was loud. Really loud. It's a party. And when the lost get found, when sinners come to the Father and find forgiveness, things can get noisy. Psalm 68 Psalm 150 talk about worshiping God with loud singing and with loud instruments. Even things, the Bible even talks about loud symbols, loud clashing of symbols. We have those. And I like it when they get a little bit loud. Why? Because it's a celebration of, of our Lord and what He's done. The feast is a celebration. My, my neighbor, I think I've mentioned this before, throws parties. Not, not salvation banquets, but just, just parties. And uh, they get kind of loud. And it, it might disrupt my sleep on a Saturday night. Um, I kind of don't mind. Because I, I admire um, that they enjoy themselves and they laugh and, and they have a good time. And I, I do have to sometimes compare that to when Christians get together. Because honestly... Just between you and me, we can be a little boring. Really. And, and that's not a complaint from outsiders. In fact, I've had a few people just recently, the last couple of weeks, complain that some of the things we do here in church and in Sunday school, as adults even, you're saying, it's kind of boring. And maybe we just need to loosen up a little and get ready to welcome younger brothers home. The stuffy religious older brother refused to join this celebration. And I think it's partly because when the younger brother comes home, I think he's included back in the will. And so which means all the privileges of the family business. So it's a loss of power and control for the older brother. This happens in growing churches all the time. Kind of kind of those of us who've been here a long time. We start to get challenged in how things are done. And, and who gets to make decisions and how things roll. And it's hard for us. And, and that older brother was struggling with a younger brother that, that might get to call some shots. And the older brother missed that he could have been celebrating all along. 
All along, he could have been enjoying his rela- a, a relationship with dad, but he didn't. He didn't know how to enjoy what God had already given to him. He claims to have wanted just a measly goat for a feast, but you know, he never even asked. And when he did, it was just going to be a closed party for his same old buddies. And he, he, he just, he missed out. And I wonder, can we be a church that welcomes younger brothers, whatever they, whatever condition they're in when they come home? Can we give up our preferences and our power? Can we welcome new friends and new believers fully into the family of God? And at times, to do so noisily and joyfully. Because the last thing I want to say about this passage is, don't miss the feast. Don't miss the feast. Verse 28 identifies a problem here. It says, the older brother was angry. Very angry. And in, in that parable, he represents, like we've said, the religious Jews of Jesus' day. And I've, I've found that some of the, the most religious folks are often the loudest complainers or the most unhappy. They're angry and in their misery, they just might miss the feast of salvation. Anger is something many of us have struggled with at some point, even in church. And I, you know, I'm the same way. I'm no different. Only we don't use the word angry. We used to say things like, I'm, I'm very concerned. Or I'm very frustrated or I'm very disappointed. But it comes out as hostility and grumbling and complaining or disdain or smoldering resentment. And you're just kind of perpetually ticked off. And like the older brother, anytime our comfort zone gets rearranged or our preferences are challenged, we're going to face the temptation to be angry. And it's a choice to say, I'm going to join in the covenant feast of celebration, covenant feast of salvation instead, no matter what. That's what we want to be like. In a few moments, we're actually going to celebrate communion together. But I need to ask you, have you accepted the invitation to the feast? I don't want you to miss the covenant feast of salvation. What God has for you. Before the younger son ran away, honestly, this was a disconnected family. And when he returned and he experienced the father's grace, the father's forgiveness, the restored identity, the family, with the exception of the older brother, experienced a new connectedness. I love how the servants, when asked by the older brother, what's going on in there? says, your brother came home and we are celebrating. Not your father is celebrating, not the family is celebrating, but we are celebrating. We're, we're, we're in this together. There's a new leveling of, of relationships in this family, a new kind of connectedness that happens when people really accept that grace of God. And I've talked about humility. It seems to have come up a number of times in the last several weeks. And the only way to receive salvation is to admit that you need it. And that takes humility. And then to receive it by grace through faith, which takes even more humility. And the young son was saved because he was able to admit to throw himself on his knees. Remember, we've talked about this before, too, before the father and say, I'm not worthy. And the father says, it's not what that's about. I'm imparting new identity to you. But the older brother did not have the capacity to get on his knees, did not have the capacity to demonstrate humility and was and missed out. He was not rejected. He chose to miss out on the feast. The young son was saved because he could admit, I can't save myself. 
And the older brother missed because he thought he could save himself. Which brother are you? Have you accepted the, the banquet invitation? Have you, have you trusted the Father for salvation? Have you received His grace? If you have, you are invited to the table. To the commemorative celebration. Today, it's, it looks like this. A symbolic meal, a symbolic celebration of grace. Of a covenant agreement. Of a promise from God. A promise that you don't have to work for it. You don't have to buy this ticket. You don't have to pay it back once you've received it. It's a free gift of God's grace. It's a promise. Have you received that? I don't know where you're at today, but you know, it's not, it's not complicated. Jesus, I can't save myself. So I trust in you as the Son of God who died for my sin and rose again. I trust you to forgive me and make me right with God. I call on you, Jesus, as my Lord so that I can be in a relationship with the Father. Something as simple as that. And there's a divine exchange that happens where, where your old life, complete with its brokenness and sin and, and, and incompleteness, is exchanged for the wholeness of Christ's life. 100% perfect and complete and righteous in Him. But it's your decision. The father couldn't drag the older son in. He asked him to come, but he couldn't drag him. It's my challenge this morning. And if that's a place where you're saying today, I'm making a decision. I want to give my life to Jesus. Two things. One is, you're welcome at this table today of communion. And secondly, I invite you to to tell somebody. To tell me to head to the prayer room while we're singing and just say, I'm giving my life to Christ today. Or maybe you're saying, I'm returning. I'm recommitting my life to Jesus today. That's the invitation for us.